the animal eloquence of his hairy hands. He was fifty then, nearly ten years older than me, and still married, but living in the city separately from his wife. It made him nervous that I stopped coming to meetings, and though he'd never admit it, I think that tension gave our slow courtship a stronger charge. We eventually moved to a small town upstate, the same town he'd moved from, where he made a good living as a tenured professor at a small college. A lot of his income went to support his wife and daughter, and we lived in an old faculty housing unit, long on charm and short on function. Not owning didn't bother us, though. We were comfortable, and for a long time we were happy with each other. We went out to eat a lot and traveled in the summer. When people asked me what I did, I sometimes said, I'm transitioning, and very occasionally, I'm a painter. I was embarrassed to say the second thing, even though it was true. I still painted, and it seemed like I was better than I was when I showed at a downtown gallery twenty years before, but I was embarrassed anyway because I knew I sounded foolish to people who had kids and jobs too, and who wouldn't understand my life before I came here. There were a few, women who also painted at home, whom I was able to talk about it with, describe what art used to be to me, and what I wanted to make it be again, a place more real than anything in real life, a place I remember now just dimly, a place of deep joy, where, when I could get to it, it was like, tuning into a radio frequency that was sacred to me. Regardless of anything else, nothing was more important than carrying that frequency on the dial of myself. The problem was, other people created interference. It was hard for me to be close with them and to hear the signal at the same time. I realize that makes me sound strange. I am strange more than the bare facts of my life would suggest, but I have slowly come to realize that so many people are strange, maybe the word is nearly meaningless when applied to human beings. Still, people interfered, and so I created ways to keep them at a distance, including my increasingly expensive habit. What I didn't see, or allow myself to see, was that drugs created even more interference than people. They were a sinister signal all their own, one that enhanced and blended with, then finally blotted out, the original one. When that happened, I got completely lost, and for many years I didn't even know it. By the time I got to AA, art had all but gone dead for me, and I credit my time in those stunned, bright-lit rooms for waking it up again. When we finally moved out of the city, I began to feel the signal again, but differently. I felt it even when I was with Paul, which did not surprise me. He was not other people. But I began to feel it with other people, too, or rather through them, in the density of families living in homes, going back for generations in this town. I would see women with babies in strollers or with their little children in the grocery store, and I would feel their rootedness in the place around us and beyond, in the grass and earth, trees and sky.
To feel so much through something I was not part of was, of course, lonely. I began to wonder if it had been a mistake not to have children, to wonder what would have happened if I'd met Paul when I was younger. The third time we had sex, he said, I want to make you pregnant. I must have had sex hundreds of times before, and men had said all kinds of things to me, but no one had ever said that. I never wanted anyone to say it. Girlfriends would tell me a guy had said that, and I would think, how obnoxious. But when Paul said it, I heard, I love you. I felt the same. We made love, and I pictured my belly swelling. But I didn't get pregnant. Instead, my sister Melinda died. I know the two things don't go together, but in my mind they do.